All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. Sweeney, and joining me as always is Glenn Thomas. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, Rory. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. And welcome to our listeners who are turning into the first time because we're talking to the podcast for the first time, and it's great that you decided to join us. Thank you for all for being here, number one. And number two, uh, please excuse any mistakes we make. We're, we're new at this. Okay. You know, it occurs to me, uh, we're saying good morning. We have no idea what time people are going to be listening to this, but it's morning where we are. Happy hour of the day. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> We're here to talk about energy. Glenn, since our, it's our first show, it's not our last show, let's talk about who we are and why people should care about what we have to say. I'm just a guy who goes to a lot of meetings and tries to pay attention, uh, but the things discussed at these meetings can have a big impact on how we all use energy in our daily lives and how much we pay for it, and, and that is a big issue. I'm a reporter by training. So keeping track of all these little details and what they mean is what I do. What about you, Glenn? Uh, well, I'm complicated as always, <laughs> uh, and I didn't necessarily get to the spot in a, in a straight line. But you know, certainly have been you know blessed to be in the power industry for so many years, and uh, it's been a fascinating time to be in the power industry. Uh, you know, my my train my education is in you know uh, philosophy and religion and political science. I went to Colgate University, then went to law school. I spent the first um, bulk of my career in politics, uh, serving as an energy and environmental policy advisor to Governor Tom Ridge for six and a half years. Uh, Spent four years on the Pennsylvania Public Utility Commission, both as a chairman and as commissioner. Left the commission in 2005, uh, was with the law firm of Blank Rome for two years, and then started GT Power Group uh, in 2007. So, uh, like I said, it hasn't exactly been a straight line to get here, uh, but but since I'm here, uh, you know, it's a great place to be. So, we're, we're coming to you here from, well, it's actually not sunny Philadelphia today. It's, uh, it's fairly overcast Philadelphia. It was so really the TV, hot yesterday, though. Yeah, <laughs> the TV show is not right. It is yeah. not always sunny in Philadelphia. But we're in Philadelphia. Why are we in Philadelphia, Glenn? Uh, because PJM's right next door. PJM's uh, located in suburban uh, Philadelphia in Norristown, Pennsylvania, and uh and plus, we like Philadelphia. That's the other reason. <laughs> PJM is a uh, interstate grid expanding from New Jersey to Illinois, south to Tennessee and North Carolina. 13 states plus the District of Columbia. Their job is to keep the lights on, provide power reliably, but also at the lowest possible price as well. PJM has two main jobs. One is to run the transmission system, the large wires that move electricity from the generation facilities to consumers. Um, and their second job is to operate the interstate power market. It's a very important agency. Not too many people necessarily know it exists, but there's a reason why a tree in Ohio could black out Manhattan, and that's because our electricity grid is interconnected, and PJM is that entity that manages it in that mid-Atlantic region. I read somewhere that the the electricity grid, the U.S. electricity grid, is the largest machine in the world. I'm not sure if that's accurate or not, but it's a, it's an intriguing concept to think about all of these interconnected things, and we 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 think about them as a bunch of machines that are sort of connected. But if, if you, on a larger level, they are all uh, sort of like the human body. 
you've got a bunch of different organs that are all connected and have to serve one purpose. So uh, it, it's interesting how all these interconnected pieces have to come together in a very specific way to make this work. So I'm trying to think of a machine that could be bigger than that, <laughs> and I don't, I don't, I'm not sure I can name it. Yeah. So yeah, no, it's an, it's an excellent yeah. observation. From a political perspective, how would you describe PJM? What is their job as sort of the intersection between states and FERC? It sounds like you're saying there's some issues there. Well, PJM is a political entity, you know, by its nature. I mean, people vote. Um, there's sectors. There's the ability to make to dis- decisions. You know, there's ultimately a board at PJM that makes all the calls. So in, in a lot of respects, it, it resembles a regulatory process at the state level. I mean, the, you know, the stakeholder body is the, the trial, if you will, where ideas are exchanged. You know, perhaps a settlement is reached that is forwarded to the board to the decision for a decision. Perhaps a settlement is unable to be reached and the board has to make a decision on its own, you know, without the settlement in place from the stakeholder body. You know, so there is a there is like almost a, I hate to use the word bureaucracy because it, it's so pejorative, but I mean, there is a process there um, that is political, you know, and um, there's the ability to do that. Where I think the challenge rests is when, you know, whether it's state regulatory bodies or state legislative bodies decide to take action for whatever reason. You know, there's always different motivations at the state level. I mean, it could be environmental, it could be jobs, it could be anything, right? You know, um, you know, there's a myriad of political forces that could motivate state action. But sometimes those decisions aren't really made um, with, a, with a complete and full understanding of what those decisions impact the market, you know, the, what the impact in the market is. And as a result, you sometimes get disconnects, you know, and that's, I think, I think the challenge for both PJM, you know, to, you know, better maybe explain, you know, to the states and regulatory bodies um, what the impact of their decisions are. But it's also incumbent on the states to understand, hey, if we do this, it'll come up, you know, it could potentially have these impacts over here. And this is all complicated by the fact that this is very tough stuff. This is really heady, complicated issues. And, you know, state legislators, you know, they're, they're very qualified and skilled people. They're not, there's only a handful of, of electrical engineers in, the, in this world that understand, you know, the PJM operating system, you know. Um, and those folks are employed in Valley Forge, not in, you know, the state capitals. And that's, that's where it becomes very tough and challenging. Yeah, I always like to think of uh, the PJM processes. You remember back in the day when you had overhead projectors? Yeah. And you would throw one projection on, and they would see, and then you have to, if you throw another one on top of that, and you just keep throwing on things on top, they're all by themselves potentially easily understood. But yeah. on top of each other, it, it's nearly impossible to understand all of that. Uh, and PJM just has like all of this. You've got operational mm-hmm. needs on top of. Um, you know, engineering on top of planning on top of all kinds right. of policy, and the lights of- have to stay on, right? Right. right. You know, nobody wants those lights to go off, right? You know, and nobody wants to see high prices. So um, it's a very complicated and intricate game as you recognize this intersection of yes, these PJM rules that are being discussed and debated in the stakeholder process are incredibly important, crucial to the reliability of the grid, and crucial to the well-functioning aspects of the market. But also you have decisions that are being made in Trenton, Annapolis, Springfield, Columbus, Harrisburg. 
Denver, uh, Richmond, state capitals throughout the PJM footprint that can have a huge impact on how that interstate market works. And I think we're, we're candidly, I think we're struggling with that right now as we, we're really not sure. Um, certainly, there's not an alignment right now of those state and federal and RTO factors. And I'm not I'm not sure there ever necessarily will be an alignment, but it seems like there does need to be some some more certainty placed around the process so at least folks have a better understanding of how it's going to work going forward. I think that is really the challenge is understanding how the day-to-day aspects of those PJM decisions that are made in the stakeholder process fit into this broader political context into a cohesive policy that at the end of the day is going to serve consumers well. One of the things that I've tried to do over my career is try to figure out ways to not only make energy issues more accessible to people so they can understand what's happening in their world, but also make opportunities available to people because we all need electricity. I haven't met anybody yet who goes through their life on a daily basis without electricity. So it's an important commodity you know, one that we depend on greatly. And it's important that people understand to the extent they can uh, or desire to how to best incorporate this very valuable commodity into their lives. Glenn, we can tell you were a politician at one point. Why? Because I went on and on with that answer. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it weird, though, how... And I skipped over this part for myself, but it's a similar story in that this was not, I certainly didn't go to college saying, hey, you know what I'm going to do? Right. <laughs> I'm going to get out. I'm going to be going to energy policy consulting and regulatory oversight. It's, I'm, I'm not sure if you see this with other folks, but do you notice people just sort of falling into this industry and getting, getting surprised that it exists and, and, and just being here? Uh, I mean, one of the fascinating, I think, aspects of this industry is, I mean, I think the issues are fascinating. I mean, they're really, you know, really interesting issues, you know, when you start to peel back the various layers. But I think you're absolutely right. It's the people as well. I mean, you do have people uh, from, you know, very, very different backgrounds and trainings sort of making their way into this industry. I mean, look at look at the current, current interim CEO of PJM right now, yeah. you know, uh, Sue Riley, her experiences in uh, retail sales, um, you know, working in various retail outlets throughout her career. And I think that also sort of speaks to the changing nature of uh, RTOs like PJM, um, you know, where PJM used to be a very, um, you know, I don't want to sound this, say this disrespectfully, but it was very, a very operationally focused, engineer-driven organization for good reason, right? Their job was to keep the lights on. Um, they had enormous responsibilities. Um, but, you know, certainly now, um, you know, from a political perspective, you can see that transition happening where, you know, they have to be, you know, equal parts ambassadors and engineers. Um, and I think that's, you know, an evolution we're actually experiencing in real time in PJM as evidenced by the current CEO. PJM's offices are right there in, in Valley Forge. I'm there on almost a daily basis. Glenn shows up there when the heavy hitters are in town. Or there's a good lunch. <laughs> You'll yeah. eat well. Daily meetings there. What do you find interesting as sort of an outside perspective on everything that's going on sure. in the stakeholder process? Yeah, and I mean, I even take it bigger because, I mean, I'm fascinated by all the how all the pieces fit together, right? Um, uh, because um, there is a obviously a huge mechanical machine at work here, but there's also a broader political conversation around that big machine. And that big machine, PJM, is heavily regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. PJM is technically a, a utility, and FERC is their regulator. Based in Washington, D.C., 
it's normally a five-member commission, uh, um, but now there are three members. <laughs> We're uh, going to be dating ourselves with this podcast yeah, so much. Yeah, FERC is the is PJM's regulator, but decisions and policies that you know operate at the state level have a huge impact not only at FERC but at, at PJM because you know traditionally this electricity market was the vertically integrated structure where you know a single utility, a public utility, provided your generation, your transmission, and when I say generation, I mean your big power plants that produce the power, your transmission wires, the, the larger wires that run um, run to the distribution networks that serve your community. Those were all owned by the same person, and it was a very sort of straightforward proposition. Um, and and those, those rates and terms are regulated by the Public Utility Commission. That system evolved to a system that became more interconnected as utilities realized they could benefit from interconnecting or tying their transmission systems to other transmission systems. They could take advantage of shared resources and maybe not have to build that extra power plant. They could rely on their neighbor to provide the power. We had certain systems that were summer peaking. Their loads were heavier in the summer. We had certain systems that were winter peaking. They had heavily higher demand in the winter. So why not interconnect your transmission lines instead of building a new power plant? So, um, you know, this evolved and then from that to a multi-state regional market. But yet we still have these vestiges of the old systems where states still maintain authority over generation to a certain degree and are, you know, using that authority to make some choices. But those choices have impacts on the market. <laughs> you know, most elected officials don't want to see high prices sure. and they want sure. to keep the lights on. And, you know, we're blessed right now because prices are really low. I mean, they're historically low levels and, you know, we're, we're incredibly robust and reliable system. Now is almost in some respects the golden age, if you will. If you look at like PJM's mission, it's like competitive prices and reliability. And both have, have been, both those boxes have been very much checked. That's interesting because you're saying it's the golden age, but we're also seeing a lot of concerns about the market. Will PJM be able to keep together? We had uh, a year or two ago, was it? It's been so long now. You know, several states within PJM's borders kind of doing a little saber rattling and saying, hey, maybe we're going to leave. That's interesting, right? To on one hand say we're in the best possible situation and look at the other side and say, gosh, we're, we're almost falling apart. Yeah, I mean, putting like my political hat on, if you were doing like favorable, unfavorable ratings for PJM, you would think their favorables would be off the charts, right? You know, 30%, well, we were 28% reserve margin this summer, you know, lots of juice on the system. Prices, I think, early the first part of 2019, I'm not sure if they were the lowest ever, but they were close to it. I mean, incredibly low prices uh, by historical standards. Uh, so, yeah, and, you know, going back to my days on the commission, you know, 2001 to 2005, that's what we wanted out of PJM, right? You know, we wanted them to, um, you know, keep, you know, we wanted them to reduce costs for our consumers. We wanted them to reduce prices for our consumers, and we wanted them to keep the lights on. They've done that. Um, I think where the angst has come in is some folks, some states have not been content with the results of that. They want more. And, you know, that's, that's fine, right? You can want more, you know, you can want different results, but it's a question of how you're going to go about that. So, but yeah, to your broader point, if somebody was said to me in 2005, you know, 15 years from now, prices are going to be lower than they are today, and we're going to have 30% reserve margins, sign me up for that deal, right? You know, I would have taken that in a heartbeat. And all the angst and hand-wringing that we were doing back in 2005, yeah, I mean, those boxes have been checked, like I said. Do you think the angst and the hand-wringing that we're doing today will look as silly in 15 years? 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. Yeah, uh, it depends. It, in my mind, it really depends on some decisions that are made possibly in the next couple years, right? I mean, we could make decisions. And when I say we, I mean the collective, you know, FERC states, PJM, that can preserve the ability of these markets to deliver on that promise, on that, on that vision. We also can make decisions that could completely sink that. And we could go back to, you know, some of the old methods that we used or were employed, I should say, you know, prior to the restructuring of the late 90s. You know, um, you're already starting to see some of that in California. I mean, I, I think I thought it was interesting that, you know, FERC put out an, is, an issue or excuse me, an order this week, uh, basically making it easier for, for California to do RMR, reliability must run contracts, which are out of market contracts that are needed to keep the lights on. All right. California, I put this in air quotes, you know, has a market, but it's a market where most of the resources are dictated by state procurements and they're realizing that they're having real reliability concerns. So they're having to go increasingly outside of the market to keep the lights on where PJM is very successfully inside a market construct, kept enough juice on the system to keep the lights on. Let's talk about that. You know, we've gotten into some detail here, but we haven't necessarily describe what we're, you know, I, I almost feel like we're the, uh, the blind guys who are feeling around the elephant and trying to describe <laughs> it. What are we talking about here? What is PJM? At its core, we have a competitive market, right. what's intended to be a competitive market, but we also have operational control of all of the equipment to produce and bring electricity to everyone who wants electricity. Mm-hmm. And then obviously, of course, as you mentioned earlier, there's also sort of a political element in right. there. Right. Is, that, is that the entirety of PJM? Can we describe it that way? Or <laughs> are we still sort of missing something intrinsic to what is PJM? I don't think so. I mean, it's a good question, right? Because, you know, a lot of times, like, entities like PJM just kind of evolved to where they are. It's not necessarily there was a constitution at the beginning and says, you know, here's what we are, we're done. It's kind of evolved to this spot where it is. And states still maintain, from a legal perspective, control over regulatory authority over generation to a certain extent. But, you know, when was the last time Pennsylvania or New Jersey set an installed reserve margin? Pennsylvania, probably, it would have to be back in the 1980s. I don't even think it was done in the 90s. So, I mean, the idea that states are going to maintain some sort of authority, yet they've they've transitioned the really nuts and bolts of that over to PJM, I think is significant. And, and states don't necessarily want to take that reliability aspect over, right? That's a big thing to take back on. And, you know, those were very complicated, arduous regulatory slugfests that went on to establish things like what's the appropriate reserve margin. Um, and and by the way, reserve margins can be a lot lower when you're in interstate market and can lean on a pool, you know, so there, there's cost savings there. So, I mean, when you boil it down to it, I mean, PJM, it's hard to compare PJM to something else. Because PJM is a very unique, as you point out, it's a unique regulatory animal. It's a unique operational animal. There are other RTOs. I'm not trying to say PJM itself is here, but the whole RTO construct is kind of a, a hybrid of a couple different things, which is why you have to take a very nuanced approach to it. You know, I mean, it's not like you can take, you know, what you've done in XYZ sphere um, and apply it to PJM. You have to be willing to realize PJM is a different animal uh, the regulatory construct around P 
PJM is a, is a different animal. And, and it's it's very uncomfortable animal for a lot of folks, particularly like engineers, right, who are used to seeing things in a straight line and very operationally focused. It's a much more nuanced place to, to do business and to think about market opportunity. Yeah, do you think it's a good thing that we have this construct that is on its face built on facts and numbers and finding ways to quantify things. Right. And all of that information is then put into a very qualitative, we think about it, we vote on it, and we make decisions based on the, the group's preferences. Is that sort of hybrid of, you know, you, you were saying it's sort of a nightmare for engineers. Is that sort of hybrid of very specific information connected with very qualitative thoughts and infused with political intent? Is that the highest and best way to do this? Are we on the right path? Yes. I mean, in my mind, we are. I mean, I, I fundamentally believe PJM is a good thing, right? You know, and the value it brings is significant. Consumers benefit from, you know, a larger pool of resources from which to, to, to base their resources. The ability of generators to make their product and move it over a large footprint, very valuable. Um, you know, from a reliability standpoint, from a cost standpoint, the value of interstate regional transmission organizations, I think, is real and worth fighting for, quite frankly. And I think we sometimes get bogged down in, in the details, very appropriately so. I mean, the details are very important, but from a big picture standpoint, this is a good thing that a place like PJM exists, and it does save you know, consumers significant amount of money. You look, you look at, you know, electricity costs as a as a portion of salaries uh, or, or average wages, and electricity costs are declining for consumers, you know, over time pretty significantly. And that's as a result of innovative approaches to it, such as PJM. So, yeah, so, I mean, for as much, like, angst and hang-wringing and, you know, um, back and forth, um, you know, it's, it's very much worth it. And I think what complicates it and sometimes makes it such a challenging proposition sometimes is there's a lot of money at stake. You know, PJM's a $30 billion market that the needle gets moved a little bit in either directions. You're talking about several hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, there's a lot at stake for consumers and, you know, and for those folks who have invested at-risk capital. I mean, there was just an announcement last, or actually it was earlier this week, you know, uh, a private developer put in over a billion dollars into a, a new plant in northeastern Pennsylvania. That that investor, those investors behind that project, have an expectation of the marketplace that will not only recover that billion dollars, but hopefully in their mind make a profit for it. That's what you know people with a billion dollars do. They look to deploy it in a way that they can earn a return on it. That's important. That plan had, had jobs associated with it in the construction and had jobs associated with the operation. But you know also that plan came online because it thought it could do it better, smarter, and faster than the competition. And having a market-based construct to do that is, is incredibly valuable, not only for consumers, but for those folks who are uh, putting their billion dollars on the line in a hope and expectation of making a return. You put a billion dollars on the line, I, I suppose you, uh, you are hoping that the system you're putting it into is going yeah. to treat it well, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not a challenge I've personally ever had, but, you know, <laughs> um, if it is, I wouldn't want to, you know, throw a billion dollars away. One, one of these days, right? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so th this podcast is generally going to be focused for industry insiders because you're the folks who are going to be mostly interested in the topics that we're discussing here. One of the biggest burning topics going on in PJM right now has got to be the change 
in management mm -hmm. and what's happening at the top. If you are not looking at PJM all day, every day, quick synopsis is there have been multiple fights within the stakeholders about a variety of different topics that have really put all of the different markets, including the real-time energy, the sort of forward capacity market, the uh, financial markets, have put them all in a bit of turmoil. And that, combined with a bunch of other factors that I'm sure we'll jump into a little bit here, caused the ouster of the CEO and several others uh, in the executive team. And they are currently in the process of finding new folks to fit in those positions. You are involved with this on a regular basis. Tell me, what, what are you hearing so far? Yeah, I mean, maybe just taking a couple steps back. Um, you know, as uh, you know, we've talked a lot about PJM and what PJM is. And uh, PJM is obviously a really important organization. And it's critical that a, an organization like PJM have some stability and strength in the, in the leadership position. So this is a big hire. You know, as you mentioned, the board is taking on a search right now. Candidly, I'm not hearing much probably by the time this podcast airs. I mean, that you know, there might be news out on the street. But I think in my mind, you know, let's focus on and maybe talk about a little bit about, you know, what PGM should be looking for in the new CEO. And, you know, you think of the skill set that's required to run an organization like PJM. I mean, first of all, you need somebody who's technically proficient, right? Somebody who can answer tough questions about voltage reductions and reactive power and, you know, capacity markets and can understand the issues that are associated with running a large power grid. But increasingly, I think the skill set, back to my comment about favorable, unfavorables, PJM has to live and survive and thrive in a political atmosphere. PJM will struggle as an organization and will be unable to deliver on its promise if it doesn't enjoy political support at both FERC and the state level. And in that respect, the CEO really needs to be the ambassador of the organization, the face of the organization with those entities, the person who can instill confidence in the political world that, one, they got this under control. They are doing, they are an incredibly professional organization that does a terrific job of keeping the lights on and running the markets. I hate to tell too many war stories, but I can still harken back to my first visit to PJM, which was probably in 2000, maybe late 1999 or so. And I remember walking in the building, Met several folks who actually are still there. Steve Hurling, Phil Harris is not there. Pretty sure Andy was in that first meeting. Andy Ott, the former CEO. But I remember leaving that meeting thinking, I think I only understood maybe 5 to 10% of what they told me. But if those people are in charge, I feel pretty good. These are people that understand the network, understand the system, and are doing a really good and competent job. And I think that's the type of confidence that the, the new CEO needs to really bring to the table. PJM has to improve those favorable, unfavorable ratings. People need to hear PJM and think good things. The nature of these issues lend themselves to imprecise criticism. PJM is looking to raise the cost of renewables and keep renewables off the grid. Okay, I mean, there's a, a lot of confidence complicated factors that go into statements like that. So, you know, as I'm thinking about the new CEO of the organization, yes, really important hire. It has to be the right person. But I guess what I would suggest if I had three minutes alone with the hiring committee is you got to think a little bit differently because I think the skill set needed to manage the RTO for the next 15 years are very different than the skill set needed over the last 15 years. You need somebody very comfortable, like, like I said, technically proficient. I don't want to dismiss that. It's really important to have somebody who knows the 
system, but also somebody who feels very comfortable and can operate in a political world with the acumen necessary to establish PJM as that place, that entity, that organization that is doing a heck of a lot of good for our constituents. You know, just thinking about from a board perspective, if you're going to you know, make a move where you're removing a CEO at the time, you got to be prepared to come in and fix it, right? You know, I mean, the board very much put its reputation on the line by making this move. I think they understand the situation, they understand their obligation, and I think they're going to make a good decision at the end of the day. Obviously, there's a lot of hot issues going on in PJM right now. What are you seeing as the biggest thing from your perspective? Well, I mean, there's there's no doubt about it. The biggest issue right now is what FERC is going to do with the, the MOPR, or the minimum offer price rule. And, you know, maybe for some first-time listeners, we haven't talked much about PJM's capacity market specifically. PJM runs a capacity market, which is basically the mechanism they use to ensure that there's going to be enough power on the system to meet the needs of the system. So PJM will look three years forward and say, all right, it's 2019 now. In 2022, we anticipate needing this much power. And then they're going to go out and have an auction at some point um, to get commitments from generators or demand response providers to meet the uh, projected needs of the systems three years forward. One of the concerns that's evolved over the years related to the capacity market is if states subsidize certain resources, they have the ability to undercut that market for the folks that do not have those subsidies. So, you know, say, for example, I was involved in 2011 involving a a subsidy for proposed new gas plants in in New Jersey and in Maryland. So in those cases, New Jersey and Maryland were both going to guarantee a capacity price to those new units, which effectively allowed them to bid into the market at zero, therefore suppressing the price for everybody else. What the minimum offer price rule says is no, you can't bid in at zero or some reduced level. You actually have to bid in at a realistic level so as not to disrupt the market signals for the other generators. Sorry for that long-winded explanation, um, but I thought it was important to get it out there. But FERC right now is deciding what the minimum offer price rule is going to look like in PJM going forward. Up until this point, for a variety of reasons, the uh, minimum offer price rule really only applied to new natural gas plants. Again, long, complicated history, but before FERC is... You know, a proposal that could expand that to coal, nuclear, renewable facilities. A lot of intricate issues, a lot of complicated issues. But the bottom line is this really will define how these units that are receiving support outside of the market are going to be treated inside the market. And the capacity market is really, you know, the foundation upon which the PJM market rests. The energy market is a a daily and an hourly market where, actually it's five minutes now, where power is moving around to meet the needs of the system at that time. But the capacity market really is what ensures there's enough steel in the ground, enough capacity on the system to meet the needs of the system. And there's real financial consequences associated with it. I mean, the capacity market, it varies every year, but we're talking somewhere between seven and $12 billion a year. Significant money, but I mean, it goes to a very important end, namely ensuring reliability in the footprint. So hopefully FERC makes a decision on this soon. This one, again, I keep saying it was a long, complicated history, and I really, really, really don't want to go into the details. Because <laughs> I don't want you to. You're right, right, right. <laughs> but for a variety of reasons, you know, it's not looking like we're going to get a decision before December of this year, and that's, it's too long. I mean, it's, yeah. it's been pending at FERC for over two years, yeah. and we really need to get this Well, result. so I mean, what we're talking about here is someone saying, hey, I'll pay you today for giving me two hamburgers tomorrow. Right. Right? Yeah. And But you need to have a, some rules around that. Yes. Because what is a hamburger exactly? Will it have pickles on it? Is it going to do this? And how much are you going to pay me for that? Right. And the whole other side of this here 
is, well, if individual states are going to say the market gives you $5 for a hamburger, I'm going to give you an extra $3 on top of that, right? And and you're funneling money outside of this market. Suddenly, these uh, cost-effective hamburger is... $20. $20. And me as a, as a resident of, of that state, I don't notice that some of it came from the market and some of it right. came from funneled through my state. I just notice that I paid a lot here in the electric electricity market. I paid a lot for my bill and I also paid a lot in taxes. And those combined together, they all sort of get funneled into one place and then reallocated from there. Individuals don't see how that happens, but it's all kind of getting lumped in there, correct? Well, Let's, let's take that hamburger analogy and take it one step further to explain what is really going on here. Let's pretend you and I have two hamburger stands, yeah. okay? We're both selling hamburgers to you know, customers coming off the street, okay? But say you get $3 from the government because you use organic lettuce, okay? So instead of being able to sell your hamburger... Everything I do is organic, Glenn. <laughs> All right. But I mean, say, so, say both of us are selling hamburgers at $5, okay? But you get a subsidy from somewhere that reduces your ability by you know to sell that hamburger to two dollars and still make you know five dollars. Okay, I'm not getting that subsidy. All right, yeah. um, you can sell your hamburgers for two dollars, but your profit, you know, in essence, your profit is at let's just say it was five dollars. Yeah. You know, whatever. Yeah. We're trying to sell a product to you know to this consumer. Okay, and I have to recover all my costs on my own. Okay. So I can reduce my costs. I can, you know, try to reduce my fuel. I can try to do everything I can. But, you know, ultimately, you know, we're both buying for that same customer. And, you know, I drive my costs down and I, you know, the best I can do is sell my hamburgers at $5 and still make a little bit of, of profit. Whereas you can sell your hamburgers at $2 and still make a profit mm-hmm. because you have this outside support. I think that's this, what we're yeah, talking about. Yeah, is this the idea? Because a basic hamburger is just a basic hamburger, right? Right. But here we are, you, you were talking about organic lettuce, and I might say, hey, you know, and the bun is a very artisanal bun that comes from a special Italian yeah. bakery. Are we making up attributes? Well, and in my mind, that should be your customer's decision, okay? So say, again... So I can tell them that these are the things, but they shouldn't have to pay me extra for that? Well, why not? Why okay. not? If they want to have a hamburger with, you know, a special bun and a special lettuce... right. Charge six dollars for it. Right. You know, recover your cost right. for the consumer. But that consumer is making that decision. Right. It is worth it to me to have organic lettuce versus my hamburger stand that just you know, who knows what chemicals Glenn's putting on his hamburgers. <laughs> uh, but I mean, that, in my mind, yes. I mean, if the consumer values that attribute, you know, they'll pay for it. Right. All right. I mean, think of all the things people. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> right. I mean, people you, pay eight dollars for an artisanal hamburger. Right. right. We're not making this up. <laughs> right, right, right. I mean, you could pay $5 for coffee at Starbucks Absolutely. or $2 at Wawa, yeah. right? But that's yeah. my decision. It's as probably a the same coffee. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> not a coffee drink. But, so, but the same thing, I mean, given the choice in the electricity market, the same thing. Go on, you know, depending on what state you live on, I mean, I have the ability. I've done it myself. I can go buy 100% renewable power right now. Right. Um, you know, maybe I pay more. Maybe I don't because right. the price of, you know, renewable power has come down dramatically. But let that be my decision is what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And that's, we have the structure in place to do that. And uh, yeah, that's the way the, the competition should work. Right. You right. know, your motivation should be to convince the consumer to buy your product. Your motivation shouldn't be to go to some other place, whether it's government or somewhere else, and get somebody to right. reduce your cost. Right. And yeah. the whole idea behind the MOPR, the minimum offer price rule that we started on this, is to avoid your hamburger stand 
from finding alternate. Right, because that's my reaction, right? right? You know, you know, Rory's kicking my butt, right? You know, he's selling it. I mean, what you did is you reduced your price to four dollars right. to knock me out of the market, right. you know. And now I'm stuck. You know, I paid for my hamburger stand, right. I paid for my buns, my meat, right. everything else like that. You know, now I'm stuck. So what am I going to do? Right, I'm going to go to the government and say, hey, listen, I'm going to shut down. You know, if you don't help me out here, because what you gave to Rory is knocking me out of business. Yeah, um, and that's. That's a slippery slope, right? Now everyone's handling, well, I don't want to see Glenn's company go out of business, so here's a dollar to you too, Glenn. I mean, the market monitor said time and time again, subsidies are contagious. And we've seen it time and time again. You know, once these conversations start, you head down that road, and it gets harder and harder and harder to break yourself free from it. We could go into a ton more detail, but the whole point of this podcast is we're doing this on days when PJM doesn't have other meetings, and we're, you know. The reason we're doing this is we think there's an opportunity opportunity to talk to broader audiences about these issues. And what we really hope to do is, is, is find a way to introduce you, the listeners, to these issues. If you're already exposed to these issues, trying to give you a little bit more insight into them that you may not be getting other places. We hope to have special guests on these podcasts on a regular basis. So stay tuned for more information on that. But we want to talk about the issues. We'll talk about them big picture. And like we did today, we weren't afraid to get into the weeds. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, I have these conversations with people on a daily basis that are trying to say, well, what, what do you do and, and how does that work? And, and tell me about electricity. And I'm always trying to find examples or, or analogies that work to explain this industry to a larger audience of people that aren't in, involved right. in, on a daily basis. And that's, at least from my perspective, that's why I think this is a really great idea is we can try to educate people on very detailed issues, taking taking into the context of, of what they already understand and attempting to explain this very complicated machine and all of the intricate pieces that are involved with it to average people who just want to know how to uh, intelligently shop for energy or uh, which companies to support or what policies to talk about. We've got all these states that are that are touting their interests. It's really hard to understand what the motivation is for the policies that they're promoting without understanding all the detail behind it. And I'm, right. That's what I'm. That's what interests me about this idea. Yeah, and I mean, if and if we're doing our job right, there'll be you know enough in here for the folks who, you know, are knee-deep on this issue, these issues on a daily basis, but also enough for the folk, the casual listener to say, hey, that was interesting, and then we'll have done our job. And we also want feedback. We want to hear from you all. If you have ideas about subjects you'd like us to talk about, we'd be very much open to doing that. If you have ideas about who might be an interesting guest, let us know. If you have questions, you know, maybe at some point we uh, develop a uh, listener email section where we respond to questions, but you can direct message me on Twitter at, at GTPower. That's at GTPW. R and, and Rory, I know you have a Twitter handle. Uh, yeah, I'm on Twitter at uh, RD Sweeney. That's R D S W E E N E Y. Find either of us and uh, ask any questions, or or you can email again. The uh, what's the email address, Glenn? It is Power Hour P O W E R H O U R at gtpowergroup.com. That's Power Hour at gtpowergroup.com. And we'll be happy to take your questions, suggestions, praise, and criticism. <laughs> well, Glenn, we want to do a sign-off. What do, what do you think the best sign-off will be? <laughs> I kind of like be excellent to each other. That was fun. <laughs> okay. No? What do you think? Uh, Bill, Bill and Ted, you know. I, that's what I mean. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> be excellent. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the summer of Keanu Reeves. So, oh, that's right. Uh, and they brought it back. <laughs> they did. They did. So uh, this is going to be the end of our first episode. And, you know, I know we called this the GT Power Hour, Glenn. But how much time have we saved? 
saved. It looks like we're at about 39 minutes for this episode. We're going to give you an extra 20 minutes back. There you go. Enjoy it. Use it well, folks. All right. Be excellent to each other. How's that sound? Uh, there you go. I appreciate it. We'll see you next time. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts, and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com, that's G-T-P-O-W-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.com, or send us an email at powerhour at gtpowergroup.com, that's P-O-W-E-R-H-O-U-R at gtpowergroup.com. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.